to Luke chapter 6. How many of you have heard a phone call that has begun with something like this? Hello, I have been trying to reach you about your vehicle's extended warranty. How many of y'all have gotten that phone call at least 586 times in the last, you know, six months? Uh, Obviously, if you're like me, your vehicle does not have an extended warranty. I drive cars that are used and and ones that I can afford and that sort of thing. They they don't come with an extended warranty. Extended warranty was left hundreds of thousands of miles ago, right? And so when I get these calls, you're like, what a joke. Another one I often get is, hello, we have been trying to reach you about your student loans. I guess they just assume that because I'm a millennial, I have taken out a loan that I did not intend to repay. I'm sorry, I haven't done that. I don't have any student loans or your credit card balance. Not me again. You know, where, where are these calls coming from? I'm not sure where they're all coming from, but I can tell you this. At the, at the bottom of them, is it's basically a scam. It is a deception. It is a counterfeit. The, the person calling you has nothing to do with vehicle extended warranties or credit card debt or student loans. There's a lot of scams in our world today, a lot of counterfeits in our world today. Every so often, the Department of the Treasury will have to come out with an updated design on, on our currency, right? You get those new $100 bills that, that feel like they're plastic, and they got the little stripe down them, and you can look up and see, I said, who, who's on that? I haven't seen one of those in a while. Oh, yeah, Benjamin Franklin in the watermark on the bill. All of these security features to try to prevent counterfeiting from, occur, from occurring. In fact, during World War II, the Nazis had this massive plan to print a whole bunch of British currency fly over the island of Britain and drop it out of airplanes. Uh, And then eventually it would make it into the circulation, and then there would be a complete collapse of the currency because nobody would know what's real and what's not. Um, The plan didn't work, so they took all of the money, they put it in chests, and chunked it into a big lake in in the Alps. Interesting story. Money was just found in recent years. But a lot of counterfeits in our world today, counterfeit money, counterfeit uh, extended vehicle warranties, counterfeit credentials, counterfeit you name it, in our world today. As dangerous as these counterfeits are to maybe our monetary supply or to your pocketbook, the most dangerous counterfeit that can exist is a counterfeit Christianity. A Christianity that looks like the real thing, a Christianity that sometimes acts like the real thing, but a Christianity that is in fact not the real thing. Counterfeit Christianity will not save you. A counterfeit Christianity, yes, will go to church on a Sunday morning. A counterfeit Christianity will sit in a pew. A counterfeit Christianity will sing the hymns. A counterfeit Christianity might even put a coat and tie on or a dress and come to church and look very spiritual. But a counterfeit Christianity will not save. It plays the part. It talks the talk. Counterfeit Christianity may even have a fish on the back of the Chevy Silverado. It may be a member of a church but it's fake. So we come to the end of this sermon that Jesus has been preaching in Luke chapter 6. He comes with a very direct contrast between authentic and false Christianity, between true and false discipleship, between those who simply would hear his words and be curious about them and those who actually believe them and apply them to their hearts. The difference between a heart that has been redeemed and one that has not Throughout the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus has been speaking primarily to his disciples, saying, here's what real Christianity looks like. Here's what it looks like to to follow me. He began with those blessings and those woes, uh, beginning in verse 20, contrasting those who are blessed and those who are cursed, those who are saved and those who are condemned. He talked about 
judging that we looked at last week. He talked about loving your, your enemies, verses 27 down to 36. And tonight now, or today, he comes to the conclusion of the sermon. So follow along as I read Luke chapter 6. We're picking up in verse 43. And I want you to notice the, 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 the contrasts that are here. Luke 6, beginning in verse 43. Follow along as I read. For a good tree bringeth forth, or bringeth not forth corrupt fruit. Neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For from thorns men do not gather figs, nor from a bramble bush do they gather, gather grapes. Here's the application. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He's like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man without, that without a foundation built an house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. See the contrast between a good tree and a bad tree, between good fruit and bad fruit, between the man who builds his house on a rock and the one who doesn't, between the house that falls and the one who stands. We're getting two humanities, the the saved and the lost. Jesus contrasting counterfeit and authentic Christianity. Here's the call in the passage. The call is to you and me to have an authentic Christianity. God wants you to be an authentic Christian. Now, when I say authentic Christian, I don't mean that there's like, well, you can be sort of a halfway Christian and still make it to heaven. At the end of the day, there's only two kinds of people in the world, those who are Christians and those who are not. But since there's a lot of people who claim the label Christian, I'm forced to add that adjective, right? Authentic Christianity, real Christianity, saving Christianity. The counterfeit kind will not save you. The house will be destroyed on the day of judgment. There's two fruits. There's two foundations. There's two fates between the authentic and the counterfeit. So what are the mark? What are the marks of an authentic Christian? You say, I want to know: Am I an authentic Christian? Christian? Am I truly saved? Am I on my way to heaven? That is the most important question you can ask yourself this morning. And I want to address that question to those. Maybe you think you're a Christian, but you're not. I want you to examine your heart. And maybe as you go through the message, you're answering, yes, I I do have a real Christianity. Here's the application for you. You would have assurance before God. I am God's child, and I'm going to live out my faith. So what are the marks of authentic Christianity, of a real Christian? Well, first off, in verse 43, we see that authentic Christians produce fruit. A simple illustration, Jesus says, a good tree brings forth Uh, A good tree does not bring forth bad fruit, neither does a bad tree bring forth good fruit. Verse 43. Jesus is coming to the conclusion of the sermon. You know, notice verse 43 begins with the word for. Some people say that just goes back to the judging. No, this goes back to the entire sermon because the underlying assumption of this sermon is a right heart produces right behavior. A transformed heart produces transformed behavior. The life of a Christian is the necessary and inevitable evidence of believing in Jesus. A changed heart produces a changed life. That is the idea here. 
So Jesus appeals to an easy-to-understand agricultural image. Remember, he's in the first century. The, the Jewish people would have been very familiar with agricultural imagery. Now, most of us don't have a, an orchard in our backyard. Now, we're, we're working on one. I have some fruit trees that are growing out there. Rachel loves fruit trees. Here's the deal. The, the kind of fruit that shows up on the fruit tree matches the kind of tree that it is. You're like, man, that is some real rocket surgery, real brain science this morning. Whatever. Okay. Uh, the, an apple tree will produce apples, right? The satsuma tree should produce satsumas. The peach tree should have peaches on it. If you get oranges on what you thought was a peach tree, guess what? It wasn't a peach tree, right? Like, okay, real simple. The kind of fruit that shows up on the tree reveals the kind of tree that you have. Not only that, the, the quality of the fruit. Jesus says a, a good tree does not bring forth corrupt or rotten fruit. So if you've got a really healthy tree, it'll produce healthy fruit. Remember growing up, we had this peach tree that got some kind of a peach tree disease where the leaves all curled up. I don't know what was the problem. Maybe some of y'all know about those things. And it only ever produced tiny little really sour peaches that you could not eat. They were totally useless. Eventually, what did we do? We chopped the stinking thing down. It was useless because it wasn't producing any good fruit. Verse 44, for every tree is known by its own fruit. You know what kind of tree it is by the kind of fruit that it produces. He gives an explanation. Notice the second half of verse 44. For from thorns men do not gather, gather figs, nor of a bramble bush do they gather grapes. So if you've got a bunch of tumbleweed growing in your backyard, don't go out there being looking, looking for, for grapes on that. Don't go looking for figs on that. Use a couple different words here for uh, thorn bushes because if you know anything about the desert, there's lots of prickly things in the desert. So whether it's the little thorn bushes or the, the bigger shrubs, Jesus is like, those types of plants don't produce good fruit. That's the, that's the picture that he is painting, the, the, drawing, the, the, the illustration that he is using. Very simply, here's what he is saying. Verse 45, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth that which is good. So just as a good tree produces a good fruit, in the same way a renewed and regenerate heart produces a changed life. If there is not a changed life, if there is not the fruit of Christianity, of, of, of obeying Jesus showing up in your life, Jesus is suggesting to you that you are not a Christian. Now, let me make something very clear. We are not saved by right behavior. Jesus is not saying, if you go out and do all the right things, then you will achieve Christianity. Rather, he is saying, if you believe in Jesus, your heart will be so transformed that it will change the way you live. Right belief results in right behavior. Actions reveal themselves or reveal the attitude that underlies them. Conduct of life reveals the condition of the heart. That is what Jesus is saying. He is saying that inevitably, someone who believes in the gospel, whose heart has been renewed, their lives will be different. It couldn't be otherwise. The heart is the source of everything we do in our lives. It is the control center of our lives. It is the very center of our being. It is ludicrous to suggest that my heart could be completely renewed without it changing the way I live my life. Right? The the renewed heart reveals itself in a renewed life. So look at what he says in verse 45. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. Notice what he compares the heart to. He compares the heart to a treasury, a place where you keep your valuables. Saying that the heart is like this treasury where all of the good stuff lies and that's where everything comes from. It is the, the wellspring of our lives. That word treasury is a place where something is kept for safekeeping, a repository. 
It is the treasure itself. So the heart is compared to a treasury, to a safe, to a place where your valuables are kept. The heart contains our highest values. You say, what what matters most to me? That's your heart. Here's the reality, church. We always live consistently with our highest values. We do what matters most to us. So if you say, ah, gathering with God's people really, really matters to me, but you never do it, it doesn't really matter to you. Right? We do what matters most to us. I want to raise my children in a God-honoring kind of way, but you don't actually do anything to make that happen. It's not actually a priority. It's just something that you say because it sounds good. I really love Jesus, but you don't obey his commandments. You don't really love Jesus. We always do what is most important to us, and the, most, the thing that is the most important to us is treasured in our hearts. Our hearts are the center of our affections, the wellspring of our motivations. Everything flows from our hearts. The heart contains our highest values, our deepest affections, the animating center of our being, the seed of our motives, the seed of our desires. That is our heart. And listen, we ultimately do what we want most. Jesus is saying in verse 45, the reason why this is true is not that, oh, I've got to work really hard to do good behavior in order to be right with God. But if my heart is renewed, it will produce renewed behavior. This is the main point of the entire Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount. Our hearts must be transformed. And if our hearts are transformed, it will come out in the way that we live. What will that life look like? Here's what that life will look like. Verse 27. I say unto you which here, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. That's the fruit that he's talking about. The fruit he's talking about is bless them which curse you. The fruit he's talking about is pray for them which despitefully use you. It is turning the other cheek, verse 29. It is, verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Now, Proverbs Proverbs 4.23 makes a similar point. It says, keep or guard thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the springs of life. Here the illustration in Proverbs is a little different. He's saying the heart is like the spring. So you go go all the way to the, the, the mouth of the river and there's a spring where the water is bubbling out of the ground. Now, if at the spring, if at the source of the river, there's someone who's dumping a bunch of arsenic, mercury, and lead into the river, guess what? Everything downstream will be poisoned, right? Because it's poisoned at the source. And that's our problem, is our hearts are irretrievably, from a human standpoint, broken. They are poisoned. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's who you are without Jesus. See, we sometimes get this idea is, oh man, we, we, we have good hearts, we mean well, we just kind of mess up in the execution. Jesus says the opposite is true. Our problem is not that we have good hearts and mess up in the execution, but that our hearts are broken, they are deceived, they are enslaved to sin itself. It's as if arsenic and mercury has been pumped into the headwaters of the Mississippi, and no matter how beautiful everything is downstream to the eye, it is deadly to the life. And that is why all the actions that flow from an unregenerate heart cannot be pleasing to God. You say, I'm not a Christian here today. I don't think my heart's been renewed. But here I am in church. Isn't God happy with this? That action of going to church flows from a heart that poisons every action. That's why even our righteous deeds that we do, before, do to try to earn favor with God are as filthy rags because they flow from a heart that's not been renewed. You say, now what, how do I know what my heart looks like? Continue on in verse 45. Notice the last clause. For 
Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So Jesus says, here's an illustration. Just as a, tr- a tree produces fruit, so a heart produces behavior. And here's one, of, here's one way you can measure what is in your heart. What do you talk about? Right? What, what, what comprises your conversation? What comes out in those moments where you're not carefully weighing your words, but just sort of you stub your toe, what comes out, so to speak? You're going through life. You get into an argument. What comes out? Here's another way we could render it. I really like the way that the, the NASB renders this. It says, that which fills his heart. From that which fills his heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, the mouth is sort of a direct link to the heart. Whatever the heart is full of will come out of the mouth. Whatever the heart is full of will come out in our deeds, will come out in the things that we think. So if you have angry words, you know what angry words reveal? They reveal an angry heart. You know what hasty words reveal? They reveal an impatient heart. You know what hurtful words express? A very selfish heart. Foul, world, foul words express a foul heart. We can't say, well, the things I say, you know, they're, they're just sort of different. They just sort of come out. But my heart is really good. I really mean well. Jesus says, what comes out of your mouth reveals what is in your heart. This is just an axiom. This is just what is true out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. This is why when someone becomes a Christian, one of the, the most obvious places where they change is in the way they speak. Uh, I read a story this week about an individual who had been a coal miner, coal miner in Wales. And under the ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones while he was at Sandfields, this man came to saving faith in Jesus. As you can imagine, working in a coal mine would be uh, a pretty rough environment. And foul language was just interwoven in this man's vocabulary where he couldn't go through a sentence without saying a foul word. And one day he was looking for his socks. And this man had come to faith in Jesus. And he's, he's, re- he's a repenter and he's growing in his faith. And he's yelling at his wife, where in the world are my blankety-blank socks? And he says, in that moment... The Lord struck his heart, smote his heart, and he got on his knees and says, God, I've got a new heart, but I can't even look for my socks without cursing. Would you help me in my speech? And the gospel transformed the way that man spoke. Why? He came to faith in Jesus, and as a result of his faith in Jesus, he now noticed and cared about the words he was saying, and his speech patterns changed to line up with the reality in his heart. Now, what is true of our words is true of all kinds of behavior. Jesus is just giving one illustration Jump over with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Here Jesus is dealing with this issue of external behavior versus internal reality. And he makes a stunning statement. The Pharisees are like, oh man, you've got to keep all the external rules in order to be right with God. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You guys are missing the heart of the issue. The, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. So Mark chapter 7. Notice what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. He says, in other words, not keeping the Pharisees' rules. That's not what messes you up. But the things that come out of you, the things that you speak, the things that you do. 4, verse 21. From within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, that is lust, and evil eye, that is greed, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, All these evil things come from within and defile the man. He says, if those things are in your life, you know where they came from? Came from your heart. By the way, notice the words Jesus uses. He does not use messiness or brokenness. He uses moral terms. He does not use therapeutic labels. He uses sin labels. He doesn't say, well, it's it's just an affair. No, it's adultery, a, a high sin against God. It's not a sex addiction. It is fornication. 
It's not a, I have a problem with taking things that don't belong to me. I have sticky fingers. It's theft. It's not, man, I have a, I have a problem with, with desiring things. It's lasciviousness. These are moral terms. You know what Jesus is saying? What we need is not for our brain to be medicated, but for our heart to be remade. Our hearts have got to be changed. That's what Jesus is saying. We will not produce the good fruit that evidences a genuine Christian until our hearts have been completely made new. Here's the deal. You can't do a heart transplant on yourself. You and I are incapable of doing the heart transplant that we need. Now, you understand, I'm not talking about the the physical organ. I'm talking about the, the spiritual reality. We do not have the ability to do this to or for ourselves any more than someone can come and be like, rip open their own chest and put a new heart in. Another illustration Jesus uses for the same reality is, you must be born again. You know how much you had to do with your own birth? Absolutely nothing. And the same is true. The, you, you will have absolutely nothing to do with your own new birth, your own regeneration. God is the one who does it. It's his work. I contribute nothing except the sin that makes it necessary. So how do we get the right fruit in our lives? How do we have this a, a genuine Christian produces fruit? It's by having a renewed heart that comes when we are born again. Listen, your head might be informed through education. Your behavior might be reformed through some effort and discipline, but the heart can be only transformed through regeneration, a work of God. Now, how do you get it? You believe in Jesus. Everyone who, everyone who believes in Jesus has been born again is what 1 John 5 verse 1 says. So the question is this, are you relying on Jesus Christ, his finished work, and that alone? That is the only way to be born again is through Jesus Christ. And when you are born again, the gospel is the power of God. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. We're dealing with the same power that created the universe, that raised Jesus from the dead. It will definitely change your life. It is absurd to say, I've come in contact with the very power of God, and I'm exactly the same. The gospel will inevitably change the way you live. Now, it doesn't mean automatically. It doesn't mean immediately. It is a lifetime of growth as we change to be more like Jesus, but the gospel will change us. It is so powerful, it will not only transform your destiny, whether heaven or hell, it will transform your direction. It will change not only your eternity, but also your present. So my question is this, has your heart been transformed? Not because you tried really hard, but because you put your faith in Jesus. Has the Spirit of God taken up residence in your life? Can you see him bringing about this transformation? Are you producing the fruit of of a changed life. You need to take that, that question seriously. We need to examine our hearts. If you look into your life and you're like, I'm not seeing any of this genuine love Jesus has been talking about. I don't see a desire to obey God. I don't have a love for his people. Could it be just because you've still got the same old rotten heart? Could it be? Genuine Christianity, authentic Christianity produces fruit. We now move into the second portion of our text, beginning in verse 46, where Jesus makes this point. Authentic Christians, authentic Christianity obeys Jesus, produces fruit, but it also obeys Jesus. Verse 46 puts it in the form of a question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? So I'm a, I'm a Christian, and Jesus is Lord of my life, and I, I love Jesus, and I share stuff about him on Facebook, and I've got bumper stickers about him, and yeah, I'm all about him. But he says, you don't do what I say. It doesn't matter if you call me master. It doesn't matter what the profession of your mouth is if Jesus is not the possessor of your heart. 
So what does this obedience look like? Let's break this down a little bit. What does this authentic Christian look like who obeys Jesus? Well, he confesses Jesus, right? He confesses Jesus as Lord. He's not saying that Christianity is less than calling Jesus Lord, but rather that it is more than. This is the starting point of Christianity. Romans 10 and verse 9 says the foundational confession of every Christian is professing with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. Has there been a time in your life when you personally came to the realization that you're a sinner, that Jesus died on the cross for you, and you bowed the knee to him, bowed the knee to him and confessed him as Lord. Confessing him as Lord means you acknowledge he's not just a great teacher, but he is God himself in the flesh. He's not just someone to come along and help me, but he's going to be the master of my life. That's all wrapped up in that word, Lord. Notice it's doubled here. Lord, Lord, there's, there's an intensity to this. But listen, you can say those words with your mouth without there being any reality in your heart. And I'm afraid that churches in our city are full of people who have confessed, Lord, Lord, they've prayed a sinner's prayer. They identify as a Christian. But they don't obey Jesus. See, real faith results in obedience. Jesus asks the question, why? Why would you call me Lord but not do the things that I say? Why would you say, yeah, yep, you're the boss, but I'm going to act as if I'm really the boss. That's the sense of the question. Saving faith relies on Jesus for who he is, but saving faith, understand this, will result in works. It's not that we're saved by faith and works. We're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. But listen, if we, if we genuinely believe in Jesus with all of our hearts, it'll change the way that we live. Now, verse 47, he gives us a, a wonderful little portrait of what a Christian looks like, of this authentic Christian who obeys Jesus. Look at verse 47. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I'll show you to whom he is like. Now, in the original, there, 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 in the Greek, there's three participles with one article. Here's what this means. We're talking about one person. It's not like, well, there's some people who come, and then there's others who hear and others who do. This is one individual, right, who, who comes, who hears, and then who obeys what Jesus says. He comes to Jesus. He comes, he hears, he acts. That is the portrait of what a Christian is. So what does it mean to come to Jesus? Like, man, you're going to have a come to Jesus talk. Now, the idea of coming to Jesus is a metaphor for conversion. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That decisive time in your life when you came to Jesus as a sinner and put your reliance and your trust in him. John 6.35 compares it to believing in Jesus. That's what coming to Jesus means, a conversion, trusting in him. You see, no man can be a disciple of Jesus Christ without first coming to Jesus. Nobody is just sort of born as a Christian. Or I think as John Wesley put it, God has no grandchildren, only children. Here's what I mean by that. Just because your mom and your dad were Christians, just because you sort of grew up in church in this sort of this environment of being around Christians and hearing God's word, does not mean that you've been converted. That we personally, individually must come to Christ. Have you done that? But then he noticed, notice verse 47. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings, that's the second feature of this Christian who obeys Jesus, this authentic Christianity that obeys him. He listens to Jesus. The sense of this in, in, in Greek is the one who is coming to me and the one who is hearing me. It's not just a, a one-time event. This is a lifelong listening. Listening to Jesus doesn't just mean I show up to church every now and then, but it means that we are lifelong listeners of Jesus, a lifelong practice. Someone who is an obedient, genuine Christian will recognize, I need to hear God's word. There's never going to be a time where I get past needing, needing to learn it or understand it. You're never going to get to the point of, oh, I've already read it. I don't need to do that again. I've heard people say that, being like, 
I don't need to read the Bible. I've already read the Bible cover to cover. Give me something else. We're never going to plumb the depths of what God has for us in his word. This is being a lifelong listener. This is being an eager listener. Though this is written in Greek, there's a very Hebrew idea behind this. In the Hebrew, the word for hearing and the word for obeying is the same word, Shema. It has the idea of sort of being on the edge of your seat, leaning forward to listen with an eagerness to do what you've heard. That's the biblical idea of listening. It's not just an auditory exercise. It is a spiritual exercise. Listening to God's word, listening to the words of Jesus. Not just about, well, I heard the words. I came to church. Someone read scripture. It went in one ear, out the other. But it makes the trip to the heart. Being an eager listener. You see, all too often we listen to the word of God like we listened, like we listened to the radio. It's just kind of on in the background. Any of you, you drive into work, you kind of got the radio, the, the, the dial set to something. So there's some noise in the vehicle as you're traveling. We kind of hear the word of God as sort of something we tune out, we pick up bits and pieces of, but we're not focused and eager in our listening. Listen to the word of God like you listen to that safety talk on the airplane, right? You get into the seat in the airplane, you put your seatbelt on, and then they're, oh, they're talking about putting your oxygen mask on, and there's exits over here, and, and they're doing that thing, and you're just kind of reading the magazine. You're just kind of like, ah, I've heard this before. We're distracted. We're zoned out. You see, we live in a time where we have so many ways to be constantly distracted, where we're not zeroed in, eagerly listening to God's word. You got one of these. There's like a million distractions. By the way, I encourage you not to read your Bible on your phone unless you put it on airplane mode. Because you get a little ding in, a text message will come, and a Facebook notification, something from Instagram. Not saying it's wrong to read the Bible on your phone, obviously, but we want to limit distractions so that we can hear God's word eagerly, hear it carefully. Tuning out everything so we can listen to the word of Jesus because it is the word of life. God's word is essential for eternal life, for a fruitful life. It is necessary, so we need to listen eagerly. In our distracted age, listening is going to require focus. One of the things that's happened because of the smartphone is people's attention spans have gone down like this to where I need it in in 180 characters or however many characters you can have on Twitter these days. I need it in little bite-sized sound bites. That's not how the Word of God operates. We need to develop the discipline of listening and hearing God's Word and and, and hearing sermons and understanding what is being said and argued, which means this, you're going to have to be a prepared listener. When Jesus says, whoever comes to me and and listens are, are people who come with a prepared heart. Can I give you a practical piece of advice? Before you come to church, prepare your heart. Preparing your heart is going to mean getting up early enough on Sunday morning to get alone with God before you come. How on earth can we worship the one true living God with clean hands and a pure heart if we haven't taken time to see that we have clean hands and a pure heart? How can we come ready to listen when our minds are just full of all the noise of the world? This might mean this, beloved. See, I'm going to go to bed a little bit earlier on Saturday night. I'm not going to watch five episodes of my favorite show until midnight, so I come dragging into church exhausted. But I'm going to prepare myself physically and spiritually to come and hear from King Jesus the words of the living God. It means my personal Bible study, I'm going to set aside a time and a place, not where I'm going to try and squeeze in getting into God's word, but where I'm going to make this something that is a given in my schedule. Hearing the word of Jesus means I'm going to be an active listener. You know one of the best ways to be an active listener as you're listening to a sermon, listen with a pen in your hand. Come to church with a notebook, a piece of paper, a pen to where I'm going to take notes. Because if you're like me, my mind wanders over here and I'm thinking about this or that. But if I'm taking notes, it kind of keeps me dialed in to be like, what's the main point? What's pastor saying? But also someone who's going to be an active listener. Be, be not just passive, and, but be actively involved as you hear God's word. Being thoughtful. 
Now notice what he says here, verse 47. The one who comes to me, hears my sayings, and does them. Going from listening and hearing to doing, you know what the bridge is between that? It is reflection and thought. It's very rare that we just sort of hear something, okay, I'm going to go do it. No, we we need to stop and think about it. Hearing God's word, obeying God's word is going to require thoughtful reflection. You see, we live in a hurried age. Maybe already you're thinking about where you need to be this afternoon and you've already booked the day full to where you're not really here this morning. You're you're a thousand other places. What if you took time today? You took notes during the sermon and you sit down and be like, God, would you show me what you want me to do with this? Every time we hear God's word preached, there is something that God wants us to do with it. And it may look as different as the individuals in this room. What I need to do with it may not be the same as what you need to do with it. But what if you took time to say, God, would you show me what you want me to do with this message? What if you said, hey, every Sunday morning after church, I'm going to take 15 minutes to just reflect on the message, to talk to my wife about it, to talk to my husband about it, to have a conversation with the kids as we drive home and to think about what God wants us to do with this. What if during the closing hymn, we're going to sing I Come Broken in just about 20 minutes whenever I'm done with this message, uh, as a closing hymn, what if you treated that not as the time to quickly get your Bible, zip, 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 get everything ready to go so you can dart out the door, but you took that as a time to say, God, I'm going to sing this hymn as I search my heart. This is not a, the, the, the hymn, we call it a hymn of response, not just to have something to do when the message is done, but so that we can actually respond to God's word. It's a hymn that expresses the the prayer of our hearts. What if you sang that prayerfully and said, God, okay, here's some things I thought about while I was listening to that message. I want to do them. That's what that hymn of response is for. We need to sing thoughtfully as we do that. So Jesus is saying the, the, the authentic Christian who obeys, he comes to Jesus, he's converted, he listens, he's a lifelong, obedient, active, eager listener, and he does what the Word says. Do you do what the Word says? Or do you come to church week in, week out, leaving exactly the way that you came? Jesus is saying, that's a real problem. A genuine Christian will slowly, over time, put into practice what God's word says. Now, let me say this. It's very rarely a drastic, massive life change where you're on your knees and you're crying and everything's different from that point. Okay, that happens occasionally. Most of the time, the Christian life is a walk where you put one step in front of another, little changes from one week to the next. It may be that, man, there's someone that I'm going to reach out to and ask forgiveness. It's someone that I'm going to write a card to this week. It's someone that I'm going to begin discipling. It's going to be putting into practice some of the things that Pastor talked about today about, about being focused as I hear the word. Little decisions week in, week out will shape our hearts to where you'll look back after a year or two years and you realize the word has changed me. Authentic Christianity, authentic Christians obey Jesus. Do you obey Jesus? Do you see, I don't mean that, when I say this, let me just add this. I don't mean obey Jesus perfectly. There is no one who has obeyed Jesus perfectly. But is there a pattern in your life where you can say, there are things that I'm actively doing in my life because Jesus told me to in his word, because the scripture says these things. By the way, this passage says, Jesus says, the one who comes to me and does the things uh, which I say In Matthew's gospel, he says, the one who does the will of my father, the will of the father and the words of Jesus are one and the same revealed in scripture, which I think is pretty sweet, that parallel between what the father directs, what the son says, what the spirit inspires. We have in the word of God, this is what we're called to do. I want to give you a final mark of an authentic Christian. Authentic Christians produce fruit. They have a changed heart that results in a changed life. Authentic Christians obey Jesus. No, not perfectly, but in a growing, persistent kind of way. But authentic Christians, finally, 
endure testing. Endure testing. So Jesus now gives us this famous comparison in verses 48 and 49. Uh, you maybe learned the song in Sunday school, though. Wise man built his house upon the rock. That's where this comes from. It's also mentioned in Matthew 7, the, the wise and the foolish. He says, the, the guy who hears what I say and he builds his life, he lives it out. He says, verse 48, he's like a man who built a house and he dug deep and he laid the foundation on a rock. So that's what it is like to say, I'm going to internalize and receive and obey God's word and actually carry it out. He's like, he says, it's like building a house with a foundation. Now, verse 49, he says, the one who hears and does not do it. By the way, why does the one who hears, it, who hears it and doesn't do it? Because he doesn't actually believe it. The reason we don't obey God's word is because we don't believe God's word. I'm just shooting straight with you, giving you real truth this morning. You say, I know God's word tells me to do this. The reason you don't do it is because you don't truly deep down believe that it, it means what it says. If we truly believe what the word says, we'll say, oh, I want to do it. So he says, okay, the guy who... Hears it and doesn't do it, doesn't really believe Jesus, doesn't have saving faith in Jesus. He's like a, he says he's like a guy who builds a house without a foundation at all. And then the test comes. There's a flood that comes, and that will reveal whether the house has a foundation or not. So the building inspection comes. Now, in the first century world, they, did, they didn't have building inspectors who went around measuring how far apart the nails were in the drywall and making sure your footers were dug deep enough and making sure you have hurricane straps on your, on your trusses. Instead, the real test would be, will the house stand when the storm comes? Jesus says the true disciple, the true Christian, builds his life with a foundation. On the foundation of faith in Jesus, a faith that is so real, it leads to obedience in Jesus and stands the test. So we got that word for construct. He says he's like a man who built a house. Literally the word to build with the word house. The one who builds a house, constructs a building who digs into the ground, and then we get another word piled up on here to make it deep, to go down deep, who's getting past just sort of the sand that is on the surface, the loose dirt on the surface, in Palestine, then digging through the clay. There would be a level of uh, an amount of clay just a few inches below the surface. Going past the dirt, going past the clay, getting down to the rock. That'd be hard work. Have you ever dug in hard clay? That's hard work. Those of you who've been out west know, man, the ground out there is really hard. It says this guy does the hard work of digging the foundation deep. Put simply, Jesus is the foundation. Okay, Isaiah 28, 16 says that he is the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation that is laid. To say the man built his life on a foundation, built his house on a foundation, is to say he put Jesus at the bottom of it, Jesus at the center of it, Jesus is the measure of it, Jesus is the ground of it. Jesus is everything. He's come to faith in Jesus. He's listened to Jesus. He's obeying with commitment. Now look what happens in verse 48. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it. Because it was founded upon a rock. Now notice that word when. The flood's going to come, right? So the picture here is someone who has built their house next to the wadi, next to the, the dry riverbed. You know, so oh, a great place to build a house next to the dry riverbed. It's easier for digging wells, for example. You don't have to dig quite as deep to get to the water table. But in the desert, storms can come out of nowhere. You might get a, a, a thunderstorm up in the mountains, and then you get a flash flood coming down the wash, coming down the, the wadi, coming down the dry riverbed. And here it comes, the wall of water raging down the, down the canyon, down the chasm, and it comes, slams into the house. It says, beat vehemently is how it's translated in the King James. The idea of that word is to smash into. The flood comes crushing into the house. To break 
into pieces upon striking against something. That's what the word is. So here comes this wall of water smashing against the side of the house. And the house stands. Why does it stand? It stands because it has a foundation. Understand this. Here's the point. The condition of the foundation is revealed by the calamity of the flood. Okay, the reality of your faith is going to be revealed when the times of testing come. The time where you're going to see, is my Christianity real? is not when everything is going great, but when things, everything is going bad. That's going to reveal, do I have a genuine faith in Jesus? Do I have a faith that will continue to obey Jesus when it costs me? The test, the, the flood comes. You see, the thing about foundations is you don't really notice them. I don't think anybody walked into the building today and was like, man, that, that foundation is really impressive. Yet all the way around, all these walls, about 24 inches down into the dirt, are footers that are holding the whole building up. And if we did not have a foundation under this building, it would cave in under itself. Underneath the Golden Gate Bridge is enough concrete to make a sidewalk all the way from San Francisco to Chicago. Right? Nobody goes to the Golden Gate Bridge and being like, man, take a look at that foundation. You can't see the foundation. It's invisible. The same true is with the Christian commitment. It undergirds. It's what is there is where the strength is. Here's the thing about these two houses. The guy in verse 49, the guy in verse 48, both of them built a house. From the outside, the houses would look very similar. From the outside, both of these men, so to speak, are going to church and are living a sort of moral kind of life. But only one of them has built it on Jesus. Only one of them is obeying Jesus from the heart. So how do you tell the difference? When is the authenticity or the counterfeit nature of their faith going to be revealed? It's going to be revealed when the flood comes, when the test comes. Christian commitment is seen not when the brook babbles peacefully past your life, but when the wall of water slams into it. It's not when you get a pay raise, but when you get a pink slip. Not when your kids are on the honor roll, but when they're in detention. Not when you're healthy, but when you're in the hospital. Those are the times when the stuff you're made of comes out. First Peter compares it to a furnace, right? You take gold and you stick it into the furnace. The gold will be purified and be revealed for what it is in the, in the heat of the furnace. Stuff that's fake will just melt and burn away. The dross will burn away. The same is true with faith. Real faith will be purified and will be manifest in difficulty. You see, for the Christian, heartache and difficulty not only reveal whether or not you have a real faith, but it actually will strengthen your faith. Faith becomes stronger the more it's tested. It's like when you go into the gym and you get onto the bench press. If you only bench press stuff that's really easy for you, you won't get stronger. It's the adversity that makes your faith stronger. Think of our friends Andy and Bryn Gleiser, a wonderful couple. We support them. They're, they're church planters over in Reno, Nevada. But a few years ago, Bryn was diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, they're in the doctor's waiting room, and the, they come and tell them, it's cancer, this is serious, it's going to be, you know, pretty rigorous treatment you're going to undergo. And I've always tucked away what they said to each other in that moment that they've shared with us. He said, there's tears, there's heartache, there's a lot of fear. But they looked at each other and said this, nothing eternal has changed. Right? What, what brought out, that's an amazing statement for someone who's sitting in a doctor's office who just got a cancer diagnosis. Nothing eternal has changed. You know what that reveals? Where their faith really is. You know what that reveals? What really matters to them. That's the disciple. Now take a look at the guy who's just the pretender, verse 49. The one who hears but does not do, because he doesn't really believe, 
is like a man without a foundation. He built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently. So the same storm comes into his life. The same trial comes into his life and the house collapses. It goes smash. Immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. We hear stories today, especially in our social media age, of people whose faith has been deconstructed. Right? We, some prominent people. You hear about the Josh Harris's who a decade ago was writing a best-selling Christian book. Today he says he is an atheist. Hearing about people like this, prominent individuals coming out, Abraham Piper, the son of renowned theologian John Piper, off making these horrific TikTok videos mocking Christianity, just heartbreaking. You say, what happened? What happened? The flood came against the house and smashed it. Maybe the flood came with a, uh, an attack against Christianity. They're like, man, I don't have an answer to this. I, I'm not ready to defend this. I don't, have, I don't think the Bible is sufficient. Maybe the flood came in a great personal tragedy. Maybe the flood came with a temptation that they didn't want to leave alone. But the flood comes, it smashes the false faith. It smashes the facade that for one point looked really great. The house looked really good. But there was no foundation under it. This man talks a good game. He says in verse 46, Lord, Lord. He's got external religion, but he does not have the internal reality. He professes faith, but he does not possess faith. Both builders hear the message of Jesus. That we're not talking about someone who lives on the backside of the Amazon jungle who's never heard about Jesus. But these are people who grow up in the Bible belt. These are people who go to Sunday school. These are people who make professions of faith. But only one stands the test, the other falls. Now the ultimate test is going to be the day of judgment. One day we will all stand before God, and what's really going on in our hearts will be revealed. You may, you may fool everyone your whole life where they think, yeah, you've got a good foundation of faith, but you don't. One day you will stand before your creator, and what's really going on in your heart will be revealed. You will be either condemned or justified on that day. You will either say, depart from me, I never knew you, ye who work iniquity. And you will be banished to eternal torment in hell. Or he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the joy of your Lord. Those are the two destinies, the two fates. We've got two trees and two fruits. We've got two foundations and we have two ultimate eternal fates, either heaven or hell. We're, I'm talking about drop dead serious stuff this morning. What is the state of your soul? you have a counterfeit Christianity or do you have a real Christianity? Now, that's a different question than saying, do you have an imperfect Christianity? You say, yeah, I've got an authentic Christianity, but man, there's some areas I need to grow. The nature of the genuine Christian is he hears the word of Jesus and he wants to obey it. What areas in your life, Christian, what areas of your life, beloved, is the Holy Spirit even now putting his finger on saying, this is a place you need to grow? Genuine Christian will be like, yes, Lord, I want to grow. Would you help me? The result here is drastic. There was complete and utter collapse. The ruin of that house was great. Complete collapse. Completely imploding on itself. So what is an authentic Christian? An authentic Christian at the end of the day is someone whose faith in Jesus is so genuine and full that it results in fruit. It results in them obeying Jesus. And it results in them withstanding the test when it comes. So here's my question to you. Are you an authentic Christian? Are you a Christian? Listen, if this morning you've heard this message, and I I don't really care who you are, you maybe have been a member of Cloverleaf Baptist Church for decades. 
You've been attending here. Maybe you're brand new. This is your first time. You say, I'm not an authentic Christian. In a moment, we're going to sing, just as I am, I come broken to be mended. Right? We're going to sing this closing hymn. This is a time for you to respond, not just to sing about it and then walk out of here. I'm going to be standing in the back. The reason I stand in the back is not so I can get to the door more quickly. So that I can be available. If you need counsel, you say, man, that's me. I want to I come talk to someone. I want to slip back while the hymn is being sung and know for sure how I can be a genuine Christian and not a counterfeit Christian. Are you a genuine Christian? Father, move in our hearts.